we will be in Zephaniah, still, chapter 3 this morning, Zephaniah 3, reading the first eight verses. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men, her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed." Ascends the reading of God's Word, and this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for this. Lord, as we continue through this minor prophet and hear the message, ask that you would, you would encourage us, that you would empower us in this you would help us to see where our lives need to heed your word, where we are off, where our thinking is wrong, our actions are wrong. Lord, be at work. Father, we need your spirit to be with us this morning, to fill each of us, unite our hearts to fear your name, strengthen and empower me to to preach your word accurately, truthfully, Lord, do this for us today. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, I would imagine that the vast majority, or if not most or all of us, have seen these three little monkeys. They are the three wise monkeys associated with the proverbial saying, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And now, now those monkeys have really, they started off, they were actually a good luck charm in some ways used by British soldiers in World War I. But they've become to kind of be a sarcastic way of addressing those who have a tendency to completely ignore wrongs, to ignore what's going on in society and to even ignore uh, when someone points out wrong, I don't hear it, I don't see it. In many ways, and this might date what I like to watch as a kid, Sergeant Schultz on Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing! You know, you just don't see, you just don't see it. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. And you know what? It reminds me very much of what we're going to look at this morning. This constant refusal to hear. 
constant refusal to heed the warning and the chastisement of the Lord against wrongdoing and sin. And not only the refusal to hear, but the willingness and even the eagerness to continue to pursue what is corrupt and what is damaging to the Imago Dei. We're going to look at two broad points this morning. First one is unfaithfulness. That clearly refers to the people. And then faithfulness. And that very clearly refers to God. And this, with this, there, I think, is much encouragement, um, maybe a swift kick in the fanny for us to hear, for us to heed, to, to, to listen to the warnings. But there is also in this, even in this word of judgment, there is still comfort in knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. The Lord will not abide forever with sinful men. So, our our text begins with a woe. Now, we've seen this word before in chapter 2, verse 5, and a woe is, it's a statement that that, that serves and works to draw attention to the complete and utterly deplorable and miserable condition of those who are being addressed. Okay, It, it draws attention to that. It says, you need to see this. As some would say, it's basically telling you, you're, you're in a bad way right now. And as we begin here in chapter 3, based on the preceding context, if you back up into chapter 2, it appears that Zephaniah is continuing to address Nineveh. Verse 15, Nineveh, that exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. And then you have woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. And so with that appearance, the hearer would, uh, and the reader of this work would have gladly assented to the charges that are being laid out. Well, yeah, of course, Nineveh is exactly like that. And this is really a brilliant rhetorical device by Zephaniah, because in just a few verses, the hearers are going to realize that it's not Nineveh that's being addressed. It's actually Jerusalem, and it's them. It's the city of God. It's not the enemies of God that are being called out here that have this woe pronounced against them, though they've already had a woe pronounced against them. But it's God's covenant people that are being judged. Simply because they are in a relationship with the Lord does not shield them from discipline and from chastisement and from judgment. The people of God are equally called to account just as the rest of the world. So then, our question is, what is this deplorable condition that is being called out? Well, we first see that they're rebellious, defiled, and oppressing. Rebellious, defiled, and oppressing. And each of these words is really packed with meaning. The first, rebellious, it is contentious or recalcitrant. And this term, though, to be rebellious, it stresses that there is already an established relationship. And that, but that relationship is being fought against. You're rebelling against that relationship. When, when the U.S. rebelled and had a revolution against England, it's because there was an established relationship, but they rebelled against it. And so the people here are rebels against the Lord. The city has been defiantly refusing to do God's will. 
And interestingly, you think about it, if the readers actually thought about this word, or the hearers, they would start to think, oh, wait, maybe this isn't Nineveh that they're talking about. Nineveh doesn't have that relationship with the Lord that we do. How are they rebels in that same way? Now, this relationship and and really the tenor of our passage reminds me a lot of a psalm, Psalm 78. And in that psalm, it's it's a long one that seeks to instruct future generations of the people of God that they must learn from their history, which we, we all need to realize that. We all need to understand that we need to learn from history. They must not continue to rebel. And I'm going to actually read the first eight verses here. And so here it goes. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that, have, that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And you notice in that, how many times did you hear speaking, vocal type of words? I will tell, I will utter. Then verse 5, He, God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is a pretty constant idea in Scripture, this rebellion. Well, then these people are described, the city is described as defiled, Now, this conveys the idea of pollution, of uncleanness. It's the kind of thing that would disqualify a person from taking part in any type of sacred task in the worship of the temple, and it would damage fellowship with the Lord. It's moral pollution that utterly swept through the people like a plague. It was rampant through all parts of society, and the land itself was said to be defiled and polluted. Well, then they're called an oppressing city. How'd you like to say, yeah, I, I live in Cincinnati, the oppressing city. It's not really a great description. It's a city that mistreated people and, and, and quite badly, but a city should be a place where neighborliness is actually most readily shown because there's more neighbors. You've got more chance to do it. But yet here, it's the exact opposite. They're oppressing their neighbor. And what makes this even more egregious for Jerusalem is that the people of Israel were specifically, specifically told by the Lord, commanded against all kinds of oppression because they had been oppressed themselves. Exodus 22, 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Folks, that standard would certainly apply to a fellow Israelite, too, arguing really from the lesser to the greater there. But yet the whole city is described as oppressing. And I hear those terms, 
And I believe we have to ask, where is this true of us today? Where is this true of us in our nation? As the church of God, in our own community or in our own hearts. Are you rebellious? Are you defiled? Are you oppressive? And certainly we are in many ways, and we need to be intentional to consider this. One commentator, I think he gave a very insightful point to this. He wrote, all throughout the historical period, social integrity went hand in hand with Yahwism, with the worship and following of the Lord. Lapse into Baalism, or whatever such God was in vogue, brought social oppressiveness and disintegration. Zephaniah's perceptive ordering of his words establishes that true society arises from committed obedience, not rebellion, and from personal holiness, not defilement. Putting the matter another way, social reformation arises from a return to God and to individual moral integrity. To seek to reform the society in the hope that this will produce high standards in a good people is to put the cart before the horse. It is converted and godly individuals that make a good society. So what does he mean by this? He means that believers need to live like believers. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But that means that we repent and believe. We're not proud and arrogant. We don't hide things. You see scandals in the church now where sex abuse is being hidden. Cover it up just to, because, you know, some good work is being done. That is appalling. We need to live with integrity and with compassion and kindness and in truth. And when we do, society is better off. When the church lives as the church is to live, society is better off. Reformation of society will not come from turning to other ideals, whatever is is propped up on social media or in the media or in academia. If it is not from God, it is not going to reform society in a good way. Returning to the Lord at the root, that's what will do it. We need to see people live truly godly lives in order to see reformation happen in our society. those are just the first three words. There's still a lot more in this text. There's more description of the city, and there's a rhythm to the next few verses that are are poetical in nature. So listen to this. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Those are brutal words. Like, think about those for a minute. Those those are brutal to hear. Especially for a city like Jerusalem that has been privileged to hear God's voice. No other nation had that privilege. And in this verse, 
you really have the essentials of life as a believer completely absent. Life as a believer is attention to the Lord's voice. It's submission to God in obedience. It's reliance and trust. It's seeking the Lord as refuge, and it's worship, it's fellowship, it's intimacy with the Lord. Now, just as a contextual reminder, remember where we are in history. Okay, we're at the time of Josiah. We don't know whether the book of the law has already been found or is about to be found. We know some reformation has started to happen, but just the fact that they lost the book of the law in the temple tells you a little bit something about the status of the city. So, first, she listens to no voice. Now, folks, it's one thing to hear, but it's another thing to listen, right? I mean, how many parents have said that to their kids? You heard me, but you didn't listen to me. Listening requires following through on what is heard. It cannot go in one ear and out the other, but must produce an appropriate response. There was constant stubbornness in the city, a resistant will to the voice of the Lord. And along with this, she accepts no correction. The city, the the people were unwilling to learn from the discipline that they had undergone. And Jerusalem had undergone a good bit of discipline by this time. They were foolish to the core. You see, the, the life of one in relationship with the Lord involves hearing and doing. Hearing, believing it, and doing, and acting appropriately response. Deuteronomy 5.1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel! Hear the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So hear them, learn them, do them, keep them well. And you know what? That hasn't changed throughout the life of God's people. 2 Timothy 1, 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when I think about these first two, this all displays a lack of knowledge of who the Lord is and a disbelief in His character. Psalm 81, I actually, this popped up in my uh, listening plan this morning, and it just leapt you know, stuck out to me. I'm going to read through Psalm 81. It's not that long of a psalm. It says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. This call to worship. And then, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known 
I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people. Hear the same language again? Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Folks, there's this pleading in that psalm in many ways of know who I am. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. If you would simply open your mouth wide like a baby bird, I'll fill it. Trust me. It's sad that we don't look at the Lord in that way. It's really sad that Jerusalem didn't. So they listened to no voice, accepted no correction, And then we see him call out the city further, that she does not trust in the Lord. It all rolls together. And this is, trust in the Lord is absolutely essential. This is faith in and of itself. Without trust, there's no faith. Without trust, there's, there's no real relationship. Imagine saying you're in a relationship with someone and you don't trust them. You don't believe them. You don't believe a word they say. You don't listen to them. That's not actually a relationship. Not a healthy one, that's for sure. And so this lack of trust, this lack of knowing, really is the root, the foundation of of not listening. If you don't don't listen, you can't know, and if you don't know, you're not going to listen. So it's this bad circle. Calvin put it well about this lack of trust and belief, that it is the cause and origin of all superstitions. For if men felt assured that God alone is enough for them, they would not follow here and there their own inventions. We hence see that unbelief is not only the mother of all the evil deeds by which men willfully wrong and injure one another, but that it is also the cause of all superstitions. Have no other gods before me. You break any other commandment, you've already broken that one because you stopped trusting the Lord. And how often do we do this? How often do we turn to rely on the things of this world? It's amazing how we can trust in the Lord for our salvation, for our eternal destiny, for peace, for for life everlasting. And yet in the day-to-day of life's demands, we turn away from and we trust in human merit. We default to ourselves. Mortier wrote, the great experience of the power of faith somehow does not carry over into areas of intrinsically lesser demand. We trust Him for salvation, but not in storms. How foolish can we all be? Yeah, Lord, you got my, you got my eternal destiny covered, but I'll take care of this situation because you're probably not that. We, we maybe think he doesn't care, or we just don't think about it, and we're like, well, I can handle it. I'll do it. It doesn't make sense when you actually stop and think about it. 
So she doesn't trust the Lord, and she doesn't draw near to her God. And here I think of Isaiah 30, 15. Beautiful passage that ends tragically. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. He says, if you just come to me, it shall be your salvation. If you return and rest. But no, you weren't willing to do it. And so this people, the city was unwilling. And what a horrible description of a city. But Zephaniah is still not done. Now he moves into the officials and the judges and the prophets and the priests. The leaders are described as lions and wolves. Okay, that leave nothing till the morning. It's a, it's a picture that brings dread. And listen, describing the leaders who are supposed to shepherd their sheep as lions and wolves is probably not a great description. They're not friends yet, okay? Someday the lion will lie down with the lamb, but they don't do that right now. You know, Nineveh is described as having no inhabitant, just the beast are occupying the city, while Jerusalem has human beasts running the city. They're feeding on the flesh of those they're supposed to be caring for. They're profiting from their work rather than serving. They're devouring the general person, the sheep of the city. And then their prophets. The prophets were fickle. They're reckless. They're treacherous. They were, they were men that were faithless and frauds, deceptive in how they lived. They presumed to speak for God without ever truly hearing a word from the Lord. They condoned evil, and they called it good. The priests profaned what is holy and did violence to the law, the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. They were to live holy lives, to revere and honor what is holy, but they did their own things rather than what the Lord had called them to. They were to distinguish between the holy and the profane. They were not to profane the holy. And this one honestly hits home to me as a pastor. Because that's so much of my role, what they're supposed to do. And the role of other leaders in the church, we're supposed to say, this is the difference between the profane and holy. We want to pursue the holy. We will not call the profane holy. But yet too many are confusing what is sacred with the secular truth with a lie masquerading as the truth. I know it's not hard, or it, it, it's hard to think about this, and hopefully YouTube doesn't block me for this, but it's hard not to take this month as an example. It's Pride Month. It's a sad and a hard time, because there are truths that are being presented that we probably need to listen to, but they're being distorted. You know, has the church oppressed and not been compassionate to those who honestly struggle with disordered affections? Those made in the image of God, and has the church disparaged them? And have Christians disparaged them? Yes. Not always. 
So let's not go there. But yes, the church has not been the greatest there. But now the pendulum has swung so doggone far. Pastors and leaders are not just welcoming with compassion and saying, come in because you need to hear the gospel. But they're also refusing to call people to go and sin no more. They're profaning what God has set forth in creation. And when religious leaders today or any day promote immorality and call what is profane holy, they're just standing in the line of these prophets that Zephaniah is calling out. And not just in this arena. We could go to multiple things. Are we oppressing people? How, how do we treat the refugee? And we may not interact with them right now, but how do we treat them in our mind, in our words? How do we treat those who are hurting? There are so many things. The church has to boldly proclaim the gospel in love has to proclaim Jesus, the Jesus who, who said he will not break a bruised reed or, or snuff out a smoldering wick, but also who calls people to live holy lives, to hear and to actually accept correction. Yes, it's come as you are, but it is not stay as you are. We serve a God who calls sinners to himself, who doesn't say, clean yourself up before you come, but says, come and let my Spirit do the work to clean you up. Declare you righteous and work over time to make you more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Folks, the God we serve is so good and so steadfast in love and mercy and compassion and yet the people of Zephaniah's day, the city of Jerusalem was full of people eager for corruption who knew no shame. No shame at their sin. No, no shame at their defiling the things of the Lord. No shame at taking what is holy and perverting it or of oppressing people for their own selfish gain. They are people who sought themselves first and showed little or no care for justice, for truth, or for righteousness, except really the skill in avoiding it very well. And sometimes we see that today, too. And it is such a massive contrast to who God is, to a faithful God. Look at verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. One thing that this clearly shows is that what happened to Jerusalem, to the people of God, it's not because of an absence of God. It's because of, an, it's because of utter failure and sin of the people. They've neglected the Lord. 
And, and what I want us to see here is how diametrically opposite this description of the Lord is with that of the people. Because the contrast is stunning. And really, you could, you could line them up and kind of do that. You could write it out and do the good old connect with the lines like the you know, kids would do on things like cat goes to, you know, furball or whatever, you know, however that works. But you could, you could make those connections because here you have the people did not listen to or accept correction, but the Lord was constantly there and His justice was shown forth every morning. He was still speaking. They would not trust the Lord, but He's the one who does not fail. They would not draw near, but He was and is ever-present. The leaders sought to devour the people and use them for their own benefit. But again, the Lord does no injustice. The prophets were treacherous and defiled and fickle, and, and, and they destroyed the holy, but the Lord Himself is holy. He is the standard. He is what they sought to defile. Contrast is amazing when you look through verses 3 through 5. And then what we have following this in verses 6 to 7, I think further shows the faithfulness of God. To some degree, I think these verses have the feel of a lament because it switches away the focus from Jerusalem in a sense, though I actually believe that the focus is still on Jerusalem at this point. But it switches away the, the, the subject, in a sense, to other um, previous judgment of the surrounding nations. And he says that should have brought about for Jerusalem the fear of the Lord. It should have brought about an accepting of the correction of the Lord. This should have served as a lesson to heed. But it didn't. Jerusalem continued, continued in its eagerness. I mean, look at the end of verse 7. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. They saw how the Lord judged sin, judged the nations. Oh, that's them. Let's keep going, people. I guess when you're in power, you don't really see a whole lot of reason to change. When you've got a good life, why change? Zephaniah, his message of judgment, it continued here, all the while displaying the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And the question for us this morning is, are we going to listen? Will we heed His words? We've seen in this the Lord's righteous character, His holy conduct, His perfect wisdom, His constancy. He never fails. He has not changed. He continues to show Himself as gracious and compassionate. Are we people that are willing to learn, to hear? Are we willing to hear this message from Zephaniah and examine our own hearts and our own lives? And that presupposes one thing. Are we actually hearing from the Lord? 
Are we listening to and accepting the correction of the Lord? However may it come, are we even, are, are we even thinking that way? Are we attentive to what the Lord might be saying? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, wrote, he said, I fear that there are times when we have not accepted discipline, when affliction has been lost on us. We have risen from a sickbed worse than when we went to it. Our losses and crosses have provoked us to murmuring rather than to heart-searching. We've been bruised, and yet our folly has not departed from us. And this is a provoking thing when we despise the rod and the hand that uses it and do not turn to the Lord. Yet it is so with some of God's people. They do not obey His voice. They do not receive correction. And therefore, when it comes, it comes to pass that at times they've not trusted in the Lord. Folks, do we have a mindset that is theocentric, that is God-centered in every aspect of our lives and that actually looks to Him? You know, there, there can be a danger to swing to one side on this and start denouncing that Hurricane Katrina was pure judgment on so-and-so-and-so-and-so. But there can also be another danger of going to the other side and saying, there's nothing to learn from it. That God's not really involved at all. Are we willing to listen? Do we have the mindset of actually looking to the Lord, of seeing His hand at work? And folks, I will tell you, that will not happen if you're not regularly hearing from Him. If you're not regularly hearing from, his, from Him through His Word given to us in worship with the people of God, it's not going to happen. We have a massive privilege of being people of the book. We don't have to rediscover the book of the law. It hasn't been lost for us. We have it at our fingertips, really, at any time of the day you could ever want it. So readily accessible, yet so often unknown and unheeded. And we've got to battle the unbelief in our own hearts. Because we will never know and trust the Lord without knowing Him without getting to know Him, without knowing of who He is, of His character, without seeing the culmination of it in His redemption of sinners through Christ. Through Christ's life, living the perfect life for us and dying the death that we deserve, declaring us righteous in His sight, that we as believers are now stated to be in Christ, in union with Him. You will not know that if you are not in His Word. Because everything else that comes at you throughout this week is screaming, ignore that. I seriously doubt there's a TV show that you watch that says, you need to remember your union with Christ today. Well, I haven't mentioned verse 8 yet. We'll close with this. Verse 8, I think, is a call to the faithful. It's a call, wait for Him. Wait for Him. Wait for the day of the Lord is coming. Wait because justice will be done. The oppression and profaning of God will cease. All will actually be set right. 
Because God is jealous for His own glory, jealous for His holiness, and He's jealous for the vindication of His faithful remnant, the humble who seek Him, the humble who wait for Him. That image of wait for the Lord is an image of, I am going to wait upon you. I'm going to look to you with um, confidence that you are at work. So even in this, even though this is a message of destruction and judgment, It's a message of calling out unfaithfulness. There is yet absolutely great hope in this. We want to wait on the Lord. Live expectantly in hope. Live faithfully in trust. To live with God as our refuge. To live in repentance and faith. To live with our ears open to hear. With our hearts ready to accept correction with our wills trusting in the Lord, and with everything we are drawing near to Him in worship. The day of the Lord is fearful, yes, but it will also be a day when those who are faithful will be abundantly preserved, and we will feast once again in the house of Zion. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this word and ask that you would strengthen us, grow us in it, teach us to pray and to repent, to rest in you. Work in our hearts, Lord. There's hard words in this, hard things to think about that we don't like to examine. But work and draw our hearts to the reality that we will be with you one day as your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.